I am thrilled with today's guest, Kenny Loggins, uh, is an American treasure. His uh, new book, Still All Right, a memoir, which came out in June and is uh, best-selling all over the place. He's had 12 platinum albums. He's won an Emmy, two Grammys. He's nominated for an Academy Award, a Tony Award, a Golden Globe. Um, his hits are too many to even go through. We're going to talk about them as we go through the show. Uh, he's been involved with some of the most uh, well-known soundtracks of all time. His first collaboration with Jimmy Messina sitting in was kind of the soundtrack of my high school years. It literally sat on my Panasonic, uh, listening to Back to Georgia, House of Pooh Corner, Vahivala, uh, Danny Song, um, Nobody But You. Just uh, It is my, my high school year, so it is a privilege to sit with Kenny Loggins. Kenny, thanks for being here. It's my pleasure. Glad we could do it. Uh, how you feeling, first of all, at the ripe old age of 70-something? I feel pretty good. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm constantly having to kick myself. You know, I'm, a, uh, I'm an avid pickleball player. And you, you've got the machinery has got to be working really well in order to play pickleball. And it is. I mean, you know, I can still get to it. I can, I can still move. Lateral stuff is solid. Knees are good. Hips are good. Thank you, God. I hear you. So right now, very topical in the news, obviously, Highway to the Danger Zone uh, is finding a new audience 36 years later with uh, Top Gun Maverick. Uh, I saw it in the theaters. I got chills. Uh, I was surprised to hear that you had done a kind of redo of it, but that Cruz said in the end he loved it, but just wanted to stay true to the exact initial one, and they just ran the first one. Yeah, I, I, I got it, too. Once I saw the movie... And I saw where he put it at the beginning of the movie with the aircraft carrier scene. And he's really using it to conjure up that original Top Gun vibe. And then the movie seems to be part two. It takes, takes off from where, you, where we remember that original 36 years ago. You know, you, re, you see that movie and you kind of say to yourself, Tom Cruise is the last true movie star that you go to the theaters for. And that movie reminds you of what movies are all about and why something can't happen in streaming, something can't happen on the small screen, and you just got to feel it on the big screen. Yeah, he had it right when he held held the movie back for, what, two years? Yeah. Now it was ready to go early on, and um, that's amazing. You know, everybody was like, no, release the movie, put it out and stream it, you know. But he had that thought, he said, you got to see this movie in a theater to fully get it. And I went and saw it again. I took my lady with me and we saw it in IMAX. So oh, you could wow. really get that yeah. huge sound around you, 5.1 and 6.1 or whatever it is now. Hey, I'd like to go back to the beginning a little bit and where you kind of started singing first. Was it in a, in a kind of a church situation and you were terrified of no, getting no, up there? No, not it at all. Somehow you did <laughs> Actually, it and, was, and kind of the I rest was, is history. I went to a Catholic grammar school and they, the nuns wanted, That's me, not it? wanted me to be the number one the, the solemn high mass altar okay. boy. We, we, they'd never heard me sing. I think this was the, just. Le, yes. See, I, I, all of a sudden, all, altar, bo altar boy in church to me is always the same thing. That's so I kind of like, that's in my mind, that's, that's where that came from. Here's the punchline to that story is I said no, because that particular altar boy would have to get up in front of the whole school once a month and sing all these different passages from the mass. And I was just, that terrified me. I, I, I couldn't imagine getting up in front of the school and doing that. So I didn't do it. I was, that was still before I was seeing myself as a singer. Yeah. And you, uh, you your brother was writing songs and you were kind of yeah. uh, 
got bit. There was one. There was one song in particular that kind of bit you, Yankee Doodle Dandy. Uh, well, no, that was the the George M. Cohen uh, movie. Um, what was his name? The actor, uh, you dirty rat. It's like James Cagney. Jimmy Cagney, right? And uh, and he was uh, George M. Cohen in that movie. And I, I was I was moved by the character. He was capable of writing a song whenever he wanted to. And I thought I can do that. And I remember I remember standing in the hallway of my folks' home, watching some of the movie from a distance. Maybe I was supposed to be in bed or something, but that awareness of watching him write the song for Mary and it was Mary, Mary long before the seasons changed that thing. And right. He writes that for her while she's on stage uh, to prove to her that he's a songwriter. And I thought, yeah, I can do that. And it was very vivid. You know, there was something in me almost remembering. What was there a moment and you, you've had so many highs in your careers and it's been so prolific. You, you and Jim Messina just got together at the Hollywood Bowl the last couple of weeks to a 50 year reunion, so to speak. I wish I was out there. And please come to New York and do that. Yeah. Was there a moment in your career where you went, wow, Jesus Christ, I really kind of hit it big. Was there, was there like, was there a particular moment where it just said, shit, holy shit, Kenny Loggins, you, you're kind of a thing, you know? <laughs> uh, well, you know, that moment has has happened any number of times throughout my career. It happened again when I went to the Top Gun premiere, and I'm standing in line, and I'm you know as the one of the actors or artists that's about to be interviewed by this phalanx of, of press, and I kept getting that message. You know, Kenny Loggins is here. Tom even signaled me out when when at the beginning of the movie where he goes out and he does his speech to the audience of very partial. You know, this is an audience of a lot of people who were in the movie and friends of friends and agents and everything. And he says, and Kenny Loggins is in the audience. And there was this big up, you know, applause, like, oh, my God. And I thought, they're applauding that I'm not dead yet. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good thing. Do you ever- I am, too. Yeah, let's hear it for me. Yes. You know? Do you ever, you know, it's interesting. I've interviewed so many successful people on this podcast. It's a pleasure to be able to do it. Do you ever have a sense, and a lot of very successful people have a sense of fraudulence where it's kind of like, you kind of like waiting for someone to tap you on the shoulder and go like, what are you doing here, man? How are you faking this? Yeah, that's an interesting thing, isn't it? Um, yeah. I, I don't know where that comes from, but it's, I remember the first time I heard that idea was Paul Simon's song, Faking It. And if you listen to the lyrics on Faking It, I know I'm faking it, not really making it. There is a quality to the process that, or, or maybe it's just the personality of the artist that we don't take credit for. We don't take credit for what we do. You probably hear a lot of artists, artists say they write a song or they write a script and then they sit back and go, wow, did I do that? Yeah. There's a little bit of a shock at the end of the song of end of writing a song where I go, wow, this feels amazing. And, I don't, I don't remember how much of this I actually did because some, some of it feels, and you'll, you'll hear this a lot. It feels guided. It feels like it's, it's been a gift from somewhere. They talk about in, in, in the early arts, you know, in Greece, they talk about the muse, the muse brings the, the art and the, the artist is the one who channels the muse. Um, There's that quality of being disconnected from your art, but you know, since 2020, I haven't really done much writing and, and been in a creative space. And I do miss it. I do feel it. I remember reading a, 
a thing from Stephen King. And he said, if I don't write every day, meaning him, if I don't write every day, I get depressed. And I remember thinking, I would not want to be around Stephen King when he gets depressed. <laughs> <laughs> but I also, I also got, oh, so that's, I'm not crazy. That is a thing yeah. you know, that, that we all seem to experience. When you're writing, I happened to see just on uh, online or just a video of Steven Spielberg at an award show, and he was talking about writing, and he that that's the 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 most magical thing is when you can't get it out of you fast enough, and and the the, the, the and, it, and you you just have to get it on the page because there's he goes and that's the definition of inspiration, and it's just that that's the magic for him. Talk yeah. to me about. That, does that ring a, hit a nerve with you when you hear that? Obviously, different medium, but 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 same mathematics. Very similar thing. That's why you know in the old days we'd go into the studio and we wouldn't come out till like fourteen hours later, because you're chasing that thing, and yeah. and when when you've got it, when you're in the zone, it's intoxicating, and you just you just stay with it because you know you know if you get up and even go to dinner, if you come back, it's going to be different. So you, you want to stay in it as long as you can. In that moment, in that moment. How'd you get together with Jim Messina initially? Um, I had heard Jim, I'd heard of Jimmy because of his production with Buffalo Springfield. And sure, that was right. my favorite band back when I was in high school. And What a band. And so I, I checked out, well, who made this record? And Jimmy Messina's name was all over it. So he was one of the guys that I wanted to audition for. And, um, and then through friends of friends, including my brother, who got hired by Clive Davis to be an A&R trainee, and his best friend, Don Ellis, got hired. So they went into a trainee situation with Columbia Records, and they were constantly hyping Clive about Danny's little brother. And, um, and then they, they wrote the letter to Messina that opened the door for me to contact him and say, I'd like to come show you what I can do. And, um, and so it was kind of normal channels, but in a way extraordinary because one of those people that was initiated, initiated my connection with Messina was my brother. Um, that album, and I talked about it in the intro and I, I, I can't tell you how much that meant to me. I, I probably, that and Elton John, Man Man Across the Water were the two things that just literally lived on my little shitty record player back then. Every song is so magical on the album. And, and when you think back to putting that, making that music, and you, is there anything that kind of jumps out at you, a, a special moment, or uh, either dur during the process or after the process, where you said there's there's something pretty special here? Well, I think the first one that the first special moment that I recognized was um, when Jimmy showed me some of his tunes right at the beginning of our our business relationship, and at the beginning, he was producing a Kenny Loggins record. So I was working up songs for that record. And the fourth song that I worked up was one of Jimmy's songs that he showed me called Peace of Mind that he'd written for Poco and they'd never gotten to. And, uh, and I were, so I worked up Peace of Mind. And then I said, you know, you've got so many great songs. Why don't you do one? And that one, that thought led to, well, you know, Let's try working this up or that up as a duet. And, um, and then we, we still had thought of sitting in. The reason we called it Kenny Loggins with Jimmy Messina sitting in was because we thought it was a one record deal. 
and that yeah. it would be like the old jazz records where two different artists sit in for one record. Mm -hmm. And um, and then we presented the idea to Clive and Clive was not pleased with that idea, Clive Davis. And he said, no, I'm not going to promote an album of a group that's going to break up. He said, so I, I want a six album commitment. I want a six year commitment. And um, we thought about it and thought, yeah, everything's going really well. The music, we're very copacetic. Uh, we get along well and the, and the music is really working together very well. So we decided we like the blend of our voices. So we decided to keep going. We, but it's ironic. We'd made that whole record without ever considering that we would be a band, you know, Yeah. which is so, so quick to normally, you know, a couple people play a, a song together in the studio and go, let's be a band, you know, let's start a band. <laughs> Not this time. I know Clive. Clive's a friend of mine. I see him around the city all the time. He's still out and about. What What is it about Clive that made him makes him so iconic and such a one of a kind? I I I think that I don't think there's anybody in his league. What it is from an artist's point of view? What is it about Clive? I think that he has the ability to talk to artists in a way that gets through to them, through to them or us. Um, but he also has amazing ears. When I read his second book, I, I sent him a note and said, if I'd known you were this smart, I would have listened to you more often. <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, definitely a, uh, an eye-opening thing to see how often he was on the money with his ideas. And literally, you know, he had a little more respect, maybe a lot more respect for the artistic process and for the idea that music is art. And he was the first one that referred to me as an artist. I, you know, or that, um, that I was writing songs. I always thought I was making them up and uh, cause I didn't actually write notes, you know? So right. the idea of being a songwriter was, was only a euphemism for me. And uh, it took a while for me to get, oh yeah, this is, this is my art. This is not just a craft. I mentioned in the intro that how, whether it's Caddyshack, Footloose, uh, Top Gun, a few others that your 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 songs somehow become the soundtracks of of some of the greatest movies of all time. Tell me about the the beginning of Footloose and how Footloose happened because Footloose is just it stands in a yeah. universe by itself. I mean, it is uh, it's it's bigger than a song. It's it's a thing. Yeah, it's a thing. Um, the the author of the screenplay, Dean Pitchford, was a friend of mine and a co-writer with me. He and I co-wrote a couple of things together. He's a lyricist. And, um, and then Dean approached me with his screenplay and, you know, on paper and said, would you read this? And if you like it, let's write some songs for it. So I, I read his screenplay and I liked what I read. And then um, we just made some writing dates and sat down and wrote to the screenplay, which was the only time I've ever done that. Usually you, you get a screening of a movie. Music yes. usually comes in as the last thing. And you, you go to the screening and you get an idea or two. Maybe you get to write with it. Maybe you don't. But with Dean, we wrote a couple of songs right off the bat. I'm Free, Heaven Helps a Man, and Footloose. And, and, um, but it was still in my mind, you know, it was a, a screenplay. I didn't even know if they had any money behind it. And it was just, you know, something to do. What it allowed me to do was write in a style I hadn't let myself write in up until that time. What, what would you, how would you categorize that style? 
a little more rockabilly, a little more Chuck Berry-ish, simpler, you know, keep the chords simple. And uh, in that way, it was more akin to my early stuff, you know, the first Loggins and Messina record, but Danny's song is like a five chord song. Yeah. And did you have any idea when you were doing it, it was going to become the phenomenon that it, that it was? None, is- none whatsoever. And I didn't even know that the music was in the opening scene. Dean and I wrote Footloose for the barroom scene that happens about two thirds through the movie where the, the kids go out of the county to go dance. Sure. And um, that when I went to the screening of the movie, that's when I saw it on the opening credits. And I turned to Dean and said, what, what's this? And he said, it's a home run, man. <laughs> Check it out. <laughs> Another song, Conviction of the Heart. You're an environmentalist, and Al Gore has kind of called that the, the theme song of the environmental mo- movement. How did that come about? And by the way, that's my... I, I've been fawning over sitting in, but that's my favorite of all time. That's that's my my personal Kenny Loggins favorite. Thank you. Um, yeah, no, that uh, um, conviction of the heart was a song that I wrote with Guy Thomas, um, and it was really we wrote the verses in one day, and then that night I dreamt the chorus. Wow! And when we plugged the chorus in, it gave the song a a central heart, a central theme that. Neither of us had seen coming until we plugged it in and went, oh, that's what all this is. This is about a character who learns about his connection to himself and to the world and to each other. You know, so it had a the song felt like it had a higher purpose. And then when it went out there and was connected with the environmental movement, I got that it, it did definitely have and still does have a higher purpose. It's still used in that arena. I have 20 workout songs. That's one of the workout songs. That one really gets me going. I got, I got to tell you. You know, I had a friend who used Leap of Faith, the song Leap of Faith, because in the, you know, in the middle of the song, there's that huge drum breakdown. Yes. That yeah. He, he was a hiker. He would go hiking in the morning. And he said, when, when the drums came in, that's where he'd set his physical tempo. Do you ever think of as an artist? About two years ago, I was at my best friend's uh, wedding. And the father-daughter dance, he was dancing with his best friend's daughter's wedding. And at the, he was dancing, and they danced to House of Pooh Corner. Yeah. And do you ever kind of say, and I'm I, I wondering what it must feel like to know how, what you do, impact, like he, this father and daughter, for that moment to celebrate their union and him, that's what they, that's what they chose to dance to and connect to. I get it. And I got I, 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 I can't imagine what that feels like. Yeah, it's, that's the power of music. You know, it just goes to, it goes in so deep. Um, I was just thinking about a song that I played for my daughter, Bella, when we would be going to school in the morning. Um, I played um, um, You're Gonna Miss This, Trace Atkins, which is a country tune. And it really hit the, the heart of the matter and for us that i'm not necessarily going to dance you know with her to that you know right right but um but it's just one of those songs that when i hear that i think of us and i think that's what happens with house pooh corner it's that early early memory my youngest daughter hannah told me that she took it with her to college uh so when she felt lonely she would play the children's album uh return to pooh corner wow one of your biggest hits was kind of came about with your with your father being ill and uh, kind of that the song never had an intention of a connection. Talk to talk to me about that. 
Right. That's a song I wrote with Mike McDonald called This Is It. And Mm -hmm. um, we had a melody that was the second song we'd worked on. And we had a melody that had two lines of lyric that came with the melody. Right at the very beginning, Michael mumbled, there have been times in my life I've been wondering why. And that's a great opening to a song. It's a great opening to a book. Um, And we had that and we had a line in the middle. You think that maybe it's over only if you want it to be. And we thought that maybe it's over was a relationship. So we we're trying to write relationship lyrics. And then my dad went in the hospital and I visited him in the hospital in the morning of the surgery. And we talked about whether or not he was going to survive because he was telling me that he was prepared to die on the operating table. And I didn't like the sound of that. I didn't think it was a good idea. And I thought that the attitude that he took in would be reflected by the outcome. So we talked about that. And then when I went back to write with Michael, we got to that line, you think that maybe it's over only if you want it to be. And then it it became obvious to me that the song was about that decision that my dad and I had been talking about, about making up his mind to survive. And he did. Do you still have your dad? No, no, that was a long time ago. Okay. Yeah. I still, I lost my dad also, but I still got my mom at 93. So, you know, uh, wow. it's, a yeah, I know she's going good. Fran Doyle, shout out. Um, you and Michael McDonald and you somehow get linked together in yacht rock. You, that, that term, what, yeah. what, what, is, what is that? Is, is that a, is that a good term for you? Is that a, how do you react when people go, Oh yeah, Kenny Loggins and, all those years, those decades, it's kind of you know, particularly the 80s and then maybe parts of the 90s, Yacht Rock. I think that it's good in that it, tick, it took a chunk of time where we were experimenting with the, the fusion of, of smooth jazz and the jazz players with pop. And it just sort of evolved into being. And I think Stevie Wonder probably had a lot to do with that in, in bringing his style of R&B in, into the uh, zeitgeist, which was important for that integration of jazz into pop. And, um, and so we worked, with, we worked with Steve Gadd. We worked with, uh, you know, uh, the Brecker brothers, David Sanborn, people like that, real jazz stalwarts at the time. And it, it changed the music, but there was no real term for it. It was just pop music back then. And then when these guys came up with their internet comedy routine and, and called it Yacht Rock for some reason, and, and somebody brought that back and said, yeah, that's, that's the term they want to use to identify that sort of jazz pop that a whole lot of us were doing at that time in the 80s. But the fact that I think the fact that Michael and I get associated with that primarily is because of What a Fool Believes, which seems to be at the core center of that. Yeah. And, and you know, a couple other tunes. He and I wrote a song called Heart to Heart with with mm-hmm. David Foster. And then uh, Heart to Heart seems to be big on the playlist. This is it is big on their playlist. And it's oh, just yeah. nice to, you know, I, I don't resent the handle. I appreciate it because all of a sudden it's now in a box that's identified and people people go there and listen to those channels and it perpetuates that thing. Is there any, any of your music and they're all your babies, so to speak, is there any that stays closest to your heart? I don't want to say your favorite cause it's a, it's a weird word, but yeah. is there any piece of music that you've written that out of all the things you've done has the most meaning to you? Well, 
there's a few of those. Of course, Danny's song from the beginning. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And Conviction of the Heart from Leap of Faith, which is a song that I can get up and play at any time and know that it's going to reach people. Um, I like the songs that have deeper meaning to me because then I know they have deeper meaning to other people. You know? uh, House of Pooh Corner, of course, or Return to Pooh Corner. And uh, those would probably be on the on the top of my list of the important songs, but I know I'm forgetting some. You mentioned that you kind of haven't been writing the last couple of years. How come? I, 2020 felt like retiring. And I realized that um, I wanted to get off what I call the hamster wheel, which is the write an album, record an album, tour. Write an album, record an album, tour. And you do that over and over and over again. I've been doing that since I was 21. And I hit this phase in 2020 where it felt like I'd retired. There was no work. There was You don't go out on the road. You don't play shows. Yeah. And and because of my age and because of where pop music is at, I really didn't feel that I wanted to play the game anymore. It just didn't make sense. I mean, I'm not even on the team anymore. So why, <laughs> why am I doing that? You know, it's just a habit. And uh, I thought, well, I'm just going to let it go and see what comes back, what's natural to me. So far, I can tell that it it's, wants to come back, but I'm also enjoying that quality of it's not exactly retired because i'm still touring but now yeah this but thanks to, to top gun but you know but i, I want to get i want to get back into the creative process because i always love the rush i wrote with the sherman brothers when they were in their 80s we wrote for the tigger movie and uh, in the process i turned to bob sherman and um, as we were finishing our song we wrote a song called your heart will lead you home and I, he was giving me a ride home. And I said, you, you know, you're 87 years old. Have you thought about retiring? And he said, are you kidding me? Where else can I get a rush like this? There you go. <laughs> you're like, there you oh, go. yeah, I, I forgot about that part. You're doing it for the rush. How did that feel up in the Hollywood Bowl last week? It was just the last few days. I, I think it was the, the 26th, the 25th or something. Yeah. You and Jim Messina up there, Hollywood Bowl. How, that had to be a rush. That nope. had to be a rush. That was great. And and it was interesting for me, especially because uh, Loggins and Messina play an hour. And then I go off, change my clothes, come back on for an hour of Kenny Loggins. So you still get yeah. Danger Zone. You still get Footloose. You still get Anderson. You still get all the, the standards, if you will. Uh but you also get the, the nostalgia of Loggins and Messina. And so I'm working for two hours and it, it was like doing a marathon. I was exhausted by the time that was done. But because, um, you know, my the peak of my career was the 80s when everything was sung way up there because you had to get to compete with Foreigner yeah. and Journey. And so I got a lot of songs that are up on a teenage range. So I, I've yeah. had to <laughs> had to hire a, a vocal coach and I work with him three to five days a week. I have now for a year and a half. It got all my high notes back. I mean, 2020 was horrible for that. You know, everything. Yeah, happened. yeah, I can imagine. You know, yeah. And what was the audience? What was the audience like at, at the ball? What was it? People with their kids, I bet a lot. It was kind of a family thing, but yeah. And also a date night thing. It's the boxes and they're expensive and you go and you bring your wine. And so you have that sort of wine and yeah. cheese crowd. Um, but um, I think the audience was very appreciative uh, and especially vocal come the movie songs um, that 
the Hollywood Bowl is a sit and listen and drink your wine kind of venue. So it's not the yeah. same as a college gig where they're up on their feet or, or you know, just a regular concert where people are buying expensive tickets and really happy to be there. Uh, it's a different kind of vibe. So it's more of a listening audience. But by the end of the show, they know to get up and have a good time. You pl any plans to come to New York in the near future? Um, I think there, I think there is, we did a lot of New York around the book release because, mm -hmm. uh, I had to cover the country in order to promote the book and, um, uh, and New York was, we did a lot there and I think we filmed some stuff there too. Cool. Kenny Loggins, a tremendous pleasure to talk to you. Continued success. Get back to work because we <laughs> could use some, always use some work. We could always use some more Kenny Loggins. The book is still all right. A memoir. And Kenny Loggins is certainly still all right. Thank you for taking the time, my friend. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to interview with Kenny Loggins. I loved it. I hope you did too. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe anywhere you get podcasts, Apple, Spotify, anyplace else. We'll be dropping our new Brands of the Week on Tuesday, and we'll see you then. Thanks so much.